Hi everyone, welcome to Diversity in D3 and 3. I'm your host Anna and that's my co-host. Today we're going to go over some news. <laughs> we're going to talk about the Detroit rapper that battle rapped Eminem and 8 Mile and that stabbed his wife to death. Detroit rapper Super MC, Super MC, is it Super MC or Super MC? Super MC. Is facing charges after authorities say he stabbed his wife to death over the weekend. Super MC, whose real name is Jimmy Brown, is accused of stabbing Kelly Mays 17 times inside a Westlane apartment in the 36,000 block of McKinney Drive on Sunday. The 46-year-old was arraigned Wednesday on a first-degree murder charge and denied bond. Kelly and Brown were separated at the beginning of the year but kept in touch. Kelly's daughter, Celeste Mays, found her mother's body when she went to the apartment and felt like something was off. That's when she discovered her mother's body. I touched her foot and it was cold time i touched her foot and it was cold i have nightmares about it at the time i fall asleep i see it she said celeste said she used to look up to brown and saw him as a father i hate him now and he is no father of mine she said now i got a fun for my sister my sister's 14 and it's a lot of responsibility brown turned himself into westland police within hours of the murder it's devastating you know everybody loved her said ralph mays kelly's dad i believe he might have even loved her i don't know he seemed like he did, but I don't know why people do horrific things like that. The couple had been together for 13 years. With violence a factor in the relationship, Celeste and her sister had begged the two to leave each other time after time. Even when they did fight in front of us, he would walk away. The one time we're not there, he took her life like it was nothing, Celeste said. If you are a loved one and are suffering from a situation involving domestic violence, the National Domestic Violence Hotline is 800-799-7233. Anything you want to say about that? Rest in peace to her. And for him, you has been, want to been, <laughs> need to been, but could have been, should have been. You sorry piece of shit. That's what I want to say to you. And they said she was what we've seen of what we've seen about the story is that she was an advocate for domestic violence too and it's sad that she died the way she died because she was a very good person trying to help other people it's so, like a coward like him it's like her life yes so rest in peace and you little wannabe rapper may you rot in jail for the rest of your life Make people shit on you in jail or whatever the fuck they want to do to you in jail. <laughs> Next, we're going to cover James and Jennifer Crumbly, the little crotch goblin's parents. A judge has ruled that two eyewitnesses to their son's mass shootings at Oxford High School will be allowed to testify at their upcoming trials. And the jury will be allowed to see video footage of the rampage. The witnesses are a teacher who was shot in the arm by the crumbly son and an assistant pr principal who encountered the shooter in the hallway during his rampage and tried to save the life of one of his victims who did not make it. The crumblies had sought to keep the witness from testifying and keep the video out of trial, arguing the footage and witness testimony are irrelevant to their case and potentially prejudicial. Specifically, they maintain that their charges involved their actions before the shooting, not during, and all that what had happened inside the school the day could unfairly inflame the passions of the jury. All evidence offered by the parties is preju prejudicial to some extent, but the fear of the prejudice does not generally render the evidence inadmissible, Oakland County Circuit Judge Cheryl Mathers wrote in her Thursday ruling. 
Concluding the video on eyewitness te testimony are relevant to proving the crime alleged in the case, involuntary manslaughter. Jennifer and James Crumbly are accused of causing the deaths of Hannah St. Juliana, 14, Madison Baldwin, 17, Tate Myrie, 16, and Justin Schilling, 17. All were killed by their son, who was carried out the shooting using a gun that his parents had bought him as an early Christmas present. Seven others were also injured in the shooting, including a teacher. Prosecutors alleged parents who will have separate trials ignored a troubled son who was spiraling out of control, but instead of getting him help, they bought him a gun, the same one he used in this massacre. They are also accused of failing to notify school officials about the gun when given the opportunity. Matthews, meanwhile, did get the... Uh, did set some limits regarding the eyewitness testimony. Specifically, the judge prohibited the witnesses from testifying about any aid they gave to the victims or discuss any suffering or emotional trauma they have endured. Maintaining such testimony is not relevant to prove the elements or of involuntary manslaughter. Rather, Matthews has ordered that the eyewitness testimony will focus on the following. The identification of the shooter and the gun that was used in the massacre. The location of the weapon and any observations the witness made of the shooter who carried out this, his crime using a gun his parents had bought him as early, an early Christmas present. The court will allow testimony from the eyewitnesses to the extent that it's probative or whether there was killing of another, Matthews writes. Concluding, the eyewitness testimony is relevant to the charges in the case, involuntary manslaughter, and that the prosecution has a right to present probative evidence as it bears the burden of proving its case beyond a reasonable doubt. In this case, the stakes are especially high as the prosecution is trying to do what has never been done before in America, hold parents responsible for a mass school shooting. Prosecutors have accused the Crumblies of ignoring a troubled son who was spiraling out of control and instead of getting him help, they bought him a gun. On November 30th, 2021, shooting at Oxford High School, four students died and seven others were injured, including the teacher who will testify on behalf of the prosecution at the Crumblies' trials. Prosecution has noticed that the two eyewitnesses it will be calling will be the only shooting witnesses to testify at the Crumbly trial, despite the fact that there were 1,800 witnesses that day. The witnesses who will testify against Crumbly's are Assistant Principal Christy Gibson Marshall, who tried to save Tate Myra's life in the hallway, where she found him lying on the ground with a gunshot wound to the back of his head and gave him mouth-to-mouth -mouth as she waited for paramedics. It was crushing. I had to help him. I had to save him for his mom. Gibson Marshall testified during a summer hearing that brought many in the courtroom to tears. I just kept talking to him. I told him that I love him, that I needed him to, him to hang with me. Gibson Marshall also encountered Crumley during the, his rampage that day. He saw him from a distance, walked toward him, and said, Are you okay? What's going on? Crumbly didn't respond. He kept walking, so she tended to the student on the ground, Tate Myrie. Jurors will also hear from teacher Molly Darnell, who locked eyes with the gunman before he opened fire on her, striking her arm about six inches from her heart. I love you active shooter Darnell texted her husband that day. She would eventually quit her job at Oxford and later testify at a hearing involving the shooter's punishment. Do you know how hard it is to heal from something like this? The shooter, Ethan Crumbly, who was 15 at the time of the shooting, pleaded guilty to all his crimes as serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole. His parents have been jailed for more than two years now on 500000 bond each. They are facing separate trials with one scheduled to begin January 23rd. Though it has not yet been cited who will go on trial first, it convicted they each face up to 15 years in prison. So, what do you think about that? Well, that was the most stupidest shit I ever heard in my life. I don't know what, what it is.
in the hell? Who came up with the concept of talking about some? Oh, his. Oh, that's buying him that gun. Is that the actions during the shooting? If he's never giving the damn gun, he don't do the shooting. So I'm trying to figure out, like, are you stupid or are you dumb? Like, I mean, they need to lay off the dog food, and I'm not talking about what dogs eat. <laughs> like, come on now. Like, that's just the that's the dumbest you could ever even say. Like, how? How? How do that even make sense? That don't, That's not common sense. They how old, and they don't have common sense? Like, come on now. That's not during the shooting. If you never gave him the gun, <laughs> the shooting would have never occurred. Like, come on now. Like, it, it falls back on y'all. I'm pretty sure that nobody else was going to give him no gun. That's the reason why he gave, that's the reason y'all gave in to him and gave him a gun. So everything that happens, it goes on, on y'all asses. Y'all are the parents. You can't control your damn kid. Your best discipline to your kid when they just acting dumb is to get him a gun. Yeah, that's why society is the way it is now. Well, I hope they do get what's coming for them. Just so American can set an example at parents need to start being held liable for some of these kids' actions. You can't buy your kid a gun and say, oh, well, we're not at fault. Yes, you are. You are at fault. You shouldn't have bought your fucking kid a gun. And you should have told the school he had a gun. When they called you into school and said that he was doing crazy shit, like drawing people and saying he needed help and stuff like that. Like, you guys are responsible. Sorry to tell you, you're responsible. I ain't sorry to tell you, you're damn sure responsible. They shouldn't have to notify the damn school because they should have never bought him a damn gun. What a damn 15-year-old need with a damn gun? He stay in a suburb somewhere secluded. Hell, he got problems with nobody. He had mental problems because his parents was crack babies and turned him into one. Simple as that. 15 years still ain't good enough for neither one of them trash bags. No, they should They should put them all in us all together. Mom, the dad. In the sun, have them have quality time together for the rest of their life. That's what they need to do. So, next we're going to go on to... This is going to be probably a three or four part case. So, buckle your guys' seatbelts. Here's the first part. It's about Dean Corral, the Candyman, the Pied Piper. Dean Corral was born on December 24th, 1939 in Fort Wayne, Indiana. First child of Mary Emma Robeson and Arnold Edwin Corral. Corral's father was strict with his children where his mother was protective of both her sons. The couple divorced in 1946, four years after the birth of the younger son, Stanley Wayne Corral. Mary, Mary eventually sold the family home. It relocated to a trailer home in Memphis, Tennessee, where Arnold had been drafted into the United States Air Force. After the divorce, to allow the sons to remain in contact with their father. Corral was shy and kept to himself most of the time, but really cared for other people. His parents would end up getting back together and marrying in the 1950s, but divorced again in 1953. His mother eventually remarried a traveling clock salesman named Jake West, and they ended up having a daughter together. They started a business out of their garage together making candy in the early days of the family candy company. Dean would work day and night. Him and his younger brother would run the candy-making machines and package products and attend school while his stepfather would sell the products on his routes. The candy was really popular in Texas. That's where his stepfather would sell the most candy. Dean would graduate high school in 1958, where shortly after the family would relocate to the outskirts of Houston, where a majority of their candy was being sold, and eventually opened a shop called the Pecan Prince. Since Dean's grandmother was widowed, Dean's mother requested that Dean move to Indiana with her, where he met a girl 
and eventually she proposed to him and he rejected his her proposal and ended up moving back to Houston in the apartment above the candy's family, family shop. The family's candy shop. Ooh, yeah. So he could help with the shop. Dean's mom divorced West and ended up opening a new candy shop in 1963. She named it Corral Candy Company. She appointed Dean the vice president of the company. A teenage employee that worked at the candy company complained to Dean's mother that he had made sexual advances towards him and she fired the boy. In 1964, Dean was drafted to the U.S. Army and was sent to Louisiana for basic training. He stayed in the Army until he applied for a hardship discharge in 1965 on the grounds that he needed to help his family with their family business. He hated the Army. The Army granted his request and he was given an honorable discharge on June 11, 1965. After 10 months of service, Dean told some of his close acquaintances after his release from the army that it was during this period of service that he had first realized that he was homosexual and experienced his first homosexual encounters. Other acquaintances noticed changes in Corral's behavior when in the company of teenage males after he had completed his service and returned to Houston, which led them to believe he may have been homosexual. The family's candy company was doing well. They were in competition with Dean's stepfather who took over pecan prints after his mom's divorce. So Dean would work longer hours to keep up with the demand of the family's products in 1965. They relocated the candy shop to a new location that was across from an elementary school. Dean was known to give away free candy to the children, which earned him his nickname, Candyman and the Pied Piper. They had a small staff of employees and Dean would be really flirtatious towards some of the teenage male employees. He, had, he even had a pool table at the factory where young employees and youth would hang out. In 1967, Dean became really good friends with a 12-year-old boy named Dave, David Owen Brooks. He would give the boy free candy, and David would go on trips with Dean to the beach, along with many other young boys. Whenever David told Dean he needed money, Dean would give it to him, and David started viewing Dean as a father figure. In 1969, Dean urged David to begin a sexual relationship with him, and Dean would pay David in cash and, and give oral sex on David. In 1970, <laughs> 1970, David's parents ended up divorcing as a result of David's mother moved 85 miles away, but David would visit Dean. When he came to town to visit his father, he eventually moved back where he called Dean's apartment his second home. And the candy company closed. Dean's mom and sister ended up moving to Colorado. Dean took a job as an electrician at the Houston Lighting and Power Company where he tested electrical relay systems. In the winter of 1971, Brooks introduced Henley to Corral. But at 8.24 a.m. on August 8, 1973, Henley placed a call to the PPD. His call was answered by an operator named Balmo Lines. In his call, Henley blurred to the operator, Y'all better come here right now. I just killed a man. Henley gave the address to the operator at 2020 Lamar Drive, Pasadena. As Curly Williams and Henley waited upon Dean's porch for the police to arrive, Henley mentioned to Curly that he had done that four or five times. Four, four or five times. Minutes later, a PPD patrol car arrived at 2020 Lamar Drive. The three teenagers were sitting on the porch outside the house, and the officer noted that the 22 caliber pistol on the driveway near the trio. Henley told the officer that he was the individual who made the call and indicated that Corral's body was inside the house. 
After confiscating the pistol and placing Henley, Williams, and Curly inside the patrol car, the officer entered the bungalow and discovered Coral's body inside the hallway. The officer returned to the car and read Henley his Miranda rights. In response, Henley shouted, I don't care who knows about it. I have to get it off my chest. In PPD custody, Henley was initially questioned about the killing of Dean. He recounted the events of the previous evening and that morning, explaining that he had shot Dean in self-defense. When questioned regarding his claim that Dean had threatened him that morning, he had shouted that he had killed several boys. Henley explained that for almost three years, Brooks and he had helped procure teenage boys, some of whom had been their own friends for Dean who had raped and murdered him, or murdered them. Henley gave a verbal statement stating he initially had believed the boys he had abducted were to be sold into a Dallas-based organization for homosexual acts in sodomy, maybe later killing, but soon learned Dean was killing the victims himself. Henley admitted he had assisted Dean in several abductions and murders, and that he had acted par actively participated in the torture and mutilation of six or eight victims prior to the murder. Most victims had been buried in a southwest Houston boat shed, with others buried at Lake Sam Rayburn and Highland High Island Beach. Carl had paid up to $200 for each victim. Brooks or he was able to lure to his apartment. Police initially were skeptical of Henley's claims, assuming the sole homicide of the case was that of Dean as being the result of a drug-fueled arguments. It had turned deadly. Henley was quite insistent, however, upon him his recalling the names of three boys, Cobble, Hilgus, and Jones, whom he stated he and Brooks had procured for Carell. The police accepted that there was something to his claims and as all three teenagers were listed as missing at Houston Police Department headquarters. Hilgus had been reported missing in the summer of 1971 and the other two boys had been missing for just two weeks. Moreover, the floor of the room where the three teenagers had been tied was covered in thick plastic sheeting. Police also found a plywood torture board measuring eight by three feet with handcuffs att attached to nylon rope at two corners and nylon rope to the other two. They also found at Dean's address were a large hunting knife, rolls of clear plastic of the same types used to cover the floor, a portable radio rigged to a pair of drive cells to give increased volume, an electric motor with loose wires attached, eight pairs of handcuffs, a number of dildos, thin glass tubes, and lengths of rope. Dean's Ford Econoline van parked in the driveway conveyed a similar impression. The rear, the rear windows of the van were sealed by opaque blue cur curtains. In the rear of the vehicle, in the rear of the vehicle, police found a coil of rope, a swatch of beige rug covered in soil stains, and a wooden crate with air holes drilled in the sides. The pegboard walls inside the rear of the van were rigged with several rings and hooks. Another wooden crate with air holes drilled in the sides was found in Dean's backyard. Inside the crate were several strands of human hair. Henley agreed to accompany police to where he claimed the bodies of most of the victims could be found. He led them to a boat shed that was owned by Dean. Two prison trustees began digging through the soft, crushed shell earth of the boat shed and soon uncovered the body of a blonde-haired teenage boy lying on his side encased in clear plastic and buried beneath a layer of lime. Police continued excavating through the earth of the shed, unearthing the remains of more victims in various, varying stages of decomp decomposition. Most of the bodies found were wrapped in thick, clear plastic sheeting. Some victims had been shot, others strangled, the luggage still wrapped tightly around their necks. 
All the victims found had been sodomized. Most victims showed evidence of sexual torture. Pubic hairs had been plucked out. Genitals had been chewed. Objects had been inserted into their rectums. And glass rods had been in inserted into their urethra and smashed. Cloth rags had also been inserted into the victim's mouth and adhesive tape wound around their faces to muffle their screams. The tongue of the first victim found hung over one inch beyond his teeth. The mouth of the third victim found on August 8th was so wide that all upper and low lower teeth were visible, leading investigators to theorize the youth had died screaming. After the recovery of the eighth body from the boat shed, the in investigation was discontinued until the next day. And we're going to leave it off there. So that's the first part of the Dean Corral story. Um, which his accomplice shot him. All these boys come missing. Now they're starting to find all these bodies because his, the guy that shot him is leading them to all these bodies that they killed and tortured and sodomized and everything else. And it goes deeper. So we'll have part two for you next time. But yeah, this is just a crazy case. Crazy, crazy case. So, just want to cover the first part today. And is there anything you want to say? I just want to say it's cold out there, you guys. Please, if you guys go out, please bundle up and stay warm. You know, uh, keep your animals inside. I have a neighbors that keep their dogs out. And it's too extremely cold for that. Dogs, you know, they freeze too. Hello. If you're going to keep your cat pet outside, stay out there with them. Assholes. And I just want to say thank you to all our listeners. We really appreciate you. If you like what you hear, please don't forget to subscribe, like, follow, and comment. We are also available on the following platforms. Amazon Music, Spotify, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and more. Our Facebook page is DiversityND. Our email is DiversityND at gmail.com. But it's spelled D-I-B-E-R-C-I-T-Y-I-N-T-H-E-D. Thanks again to our listeners. Without you, there's no odds. And we are now on Instagram at Diversity in the D. Thanks again, you guys. Till next time.